All right, guys, we're back. We have another episode of Garbage, and we have a ton of uh, interesting things to talk about. Yeah, um, we got a lot of feedback from people while we were gone. Uh, so thanks, everybody, that wrote in and uh, said they missed us, made us feel warm and fuzzy. Yeah, and everyone was also very understanding of the amount of effort that you put into editing and uh, how much work goes into putting a show together every week. And uh, they said they would miss it, but they understand the workload that goes along with something like that. Yeah, I had some uh, some chats with people at the hackathon about it that also listened to our show. Yeah. And they were uh, just wondering why we weren't putting out episodes every week or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking like, or I was talking with somebody about um, Patreon and doing that kind of a thing where people just donate money and that covers it, I guess. Right. Um, but the problem that I saw with that is that like, even if we got like 20 people to donate something every month, like a dollar or $5, that's still only like a hundred dollars a month and right. then split between us. That's like $50. And it's like, that's nice that people are donating and stuff, but that doesn't really, at least for me, it doesn't really change how motivated I would be to, you know, do research and all that every week. Right. So short of getting uh, advertisers or something, I don't know if uh, that's going to help us out much. Yep. And we do care about you guys. We do think about you guys. And I think in from my position, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do better quality shows. And I felt like, you know, maybe we were just doing too much and talking for the sake of talking and and giving kind of garbage out on the podcast. <laughs> Isn't that what the show is? But it was our own garbage, and oh, we didn't I want see. to pass that along. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess we're just going to stick with uh, doing shows whenever we feel like it. Yeah. Well, I want to hear about Cambridge because I'm really bummed that uh, I didn't get to go, and I know that you got to head out there, so I want to hear about it. Yeah, it was really fun. Uh, I think it was my third hackathon in... Uh, however long it's been since I've been an open BSD guy. Right. But, uh, yeah, it was fun. We stayed at the, uh, Churchill college in the, uh, dorm rooms there since none of the students were there. And then we had to walk down to the computer lab every day, which is where the hack room was. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was pretty fun. Um, lots of talkings and, meetings and all that with other developers and lots of it's very productive i felt like i was watching a highlight reel every, like every minute of every day because it was like arm got a whole bunch of improvements we imported uh lovm into base and and just a plethora of things going in all the time it was like a really high profile big changes big um innovations kind of Hackathon, so it was it was an awesome one to to talk about. And in fact, um, reading the write ups on Undeadly was was eye opening because you watch the commit log and you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But then you read some of the articles on Undeadly and you're like, man, there's some awesome things happening here. Yeah, and some of the stuff that like even stuff that I was involved in like talking with people about didn't even get committed. So it's still yeah. more stuff that's in the works. Um, something that I was kind of shocked by was that this is. Uh, OpenBSD 6.0 is the last release on CD or DVD yeah. um, forever, I guess. 
And mm-hmm. let me have, let's see if I have it here. Yeah, Theo made mention that uh, it would be the last release, and he wanted to, um, I guess, improve the developer's ability to keep producing good releases and at the same time get the releases into people's hands in a more timely fashion. Oh, yeah, I love the artwork on that. Yeah, the artwork is really cool. And then uh, in the inside of it, it uh, for me, it felt like high school where you go around and sign everyone's yearbook before you yeah. leave for summer. So, like, everybody that was there, I don't know if you can see this in the video, but, like, everybody oh, yeah. signed each other's. So we were, like, doing, like, everybody walking around, hey, would you sign my uh, thing? It's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I guess, the last uh, release, which is pretty crazy because they've been uh, consistent every six months for many, many years. Yeah. Um, and I don't really know, like, going forward what Theo's plans are for how that changes things. Um, as far as releasing, well, so like during the hackathon, we got the start of the bin patches stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we're going to start doing like stable binary releases. Cause I always felt like there was a conflict between that kind of stuff and the CDs, because if we release the CDs and then right afterwards we release like an errata with some changes or something, it's like immediately your CDs are kind of out of date. So you don't even want to use them because uh, you have to patch right away. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it, um, but hopefully, I'm assuming Theo has a uh, more stable source of income now since the CD sales have been dwindling for quite a while as people uh, buy fewer of or need fewer of them, I guess. Yep. That's my speculation is that the sales were dwindling he puts a lot of effort into getting all that stuff put together, and he finally just said, "You know what? It's time to uh, we can improve on the situation by making a change." And he changed the situation. Yeah. So as far as uh, OpenBSD 6.0, that release went out. I guess while we were gone, um, lots of ARM v7 work. Yeah. Um, I guess the Raspberry. What did the Raspberry Pi stuff go in before or after the release? Um, I think that's all after the release. Uh-huh. Don't quote me on that because it all happened so fast. But I want to say that the release was cut long before the hackathon and I saw the Raspberry Pi stuff happening. And I want to say it came in after all that stuff was, was tagged. Okay. Um, Vax got Ted Ude. Mm-hmm. So long, Vax. Yep. Um, WXRX is now strictly enforced with the WX allowed mount flag that uh, hopefully most people just put on user local, which can eventually go away. Yeah. Um, That's actually kind of an important topic, though, isn't it? Because um, some software requires that we disable that feature. And and I guess the consequence of it is pretty severe when you run without that set. And then the simplicity of the program to change in order to, to support that is pretty trivial. So... It says something about the kind of quality that you of the software you're running when you when you run into that issue. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know if going forward it's meant to just be something in the binary itself, and then the mount flag can get turned off because then you have to specifically compile the program to enable it, or if they're always meant to work together. I'm not really sure. What, what else was I thinking about? Um, Arm got. Uh... ARM got a whole bunch of improvements in that same area, didn't it? 
um, XOR in the kernel, XOR in the memory, and um, it got PI. Mm-hmm. It got uh, EABI. And that was after six, I think. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah, you're covering six. I was thinking about the hackathon and all yeah. these things were happening. But uh, yeah, I guess six uh, point had a had a bunch of crazy things. Um, what else happened in six o that that just got uh, Linux emulation got tedued. Mm-hmm. Uh, the libc.so relinking that happens at boot, which is kind yeah. of funky. Um, yeah. The reordering of the shared libraries you were talking about. Yeah, that sucks on uh, like a Socrus or some machine <laughs> with a terribly slow disk. But I guess you don't reboot those very often. No. Um, it's all the notes I had for 6.0. There's a bunch of info on the uh, website. They've, I mean, there's a bunch of changes that are chronicled there. So if you're really curious about finding all the nitty-gritty of it, it's all in there. I think those are the interesting things. EFI uh, oh, yeah. support for ARM, that was that was a pretty big one. Um, and, and the big thing with that is that kernels can load from FFS instead of the FAT partitions that we had to create so um that's a that's a pretty big thing a good step in the right direction towards getting boot support uh flattened device tree also went in for arm that's another big thing yeah so yeah but then there's a whole bunch of like hardware support driver support all that kind of stuff that happened we and i think we covered most of that beforehand with the uh, virtualization stuff happening the wireless stuff happening so yeah so definitely uh, everybody should go buy the uh, the DVD, even if you don't need it, because this is the last one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's all the notes I had for OpenBSD 6. Um, a bunch of other stuff that happened at the hackathon. Um, I committed my touchpad and touchscreen driver for the Chromebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I jokingly made... The kernel used Comic Sans uh, and added support for like anti-aliased fonts on the console. I <laughs> sent it out to uh, hackers and got some OKs on it, but it was just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody listening wants that diff, you can email me and I'll send it to you. Yeah. Um, I was part of some discussions on like the new touchpad driver stuff that uh-huh. uh, Ulf is working on. Um, so there were a few of us that are interested in that stuff and we got together and kind of hammered out where we want to go with it. Um, that's for moving the guts of like multi-touch handling into the kernel so that we don't have to use the Xorg, uh, synaptics driver anymore, which is kind of a pile of bad code to put it nicely. Yeah. Um, Oh, and another big thing is, so while I was, so some backstory, uh, there's an OpenBSD account on GitHub. It's been there for many years. And I used to do a CVS to Git conversion of the source tree and all the other trees, and I would push them up to GitHub. This was many years ago. And somebody checked out like the stable branch from it, and it wouldn't build. So he reported it to like MISC or something. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that that was broken. So I, I felt bad because I was, you know, causing problems for everybody else and kind of make doing this unofficially. And it was kind of seen as an official thing. Right. It was broken. So I took 
the Git trees down from GitHub, and they haven't been there for a long time. And on my way to Cambridge, uh, I was getting emails from GitHub saying that somebody was doing activity on the OpenBSD account. And I was like, the hell's going on? So once I finally looked at it, I found out that Bob Beck has started to push converted uh, Git trees to GitHub under the OpenBSD account. And these are meant to be like official trees, like official just in the sense of someone's actually doing it now again. Right. Not that like we condone the use of Git or that we want people to start using it. Um so I went and talked to Bob because I was like, you know, this is something I've been working on for quite a while with the commit ID stuff and the conversion scripts and stuff. Um, so I had some input on, you know, whether it should or how it should be done and the bugs that are existing in the current CVS to get conversion tools. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically Bob and Tom and Theo and I, uh, kind of sat down and like talked about how we want this stuff to go. And we kind of came to the conclusion that we can do a lot, we can get a lot of the properties that we want with Git in CVS if we modify CVS, <laughs> which sounds like a terrible thing. Um, and then somehow I got roped into doing those changes. So this was something that I worked on there and then I worked on once I got home. And it's basically adding. Uh, provenance to CVS. And so instead of creating a random commit ID, when you commit something, the commit IDs are going to become an actual hash of um, some information. Yeah. Uh, And this is how Git works. Basically, Git takes like the parent commit ID, uh, the date, the time, the, your name, the commit log, and then makes a SHA-1 hash of that and then that becomes your git commit ID. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do something kind of like that, but actually better because we're actually going to hash all of the diff contents in with it. So this is actually what I'm working on now is to do this starting from the beginning and going forward is to have like a um, Genesis commit or Genesis like commit ID that just is some random hash and then every change on top of that uses that previous hash in the output. And then every, so the commit ID then becomes the hash of what you just committed, all the the diff, your commit log, your username, the date, time, and then the previous hash. So going forward, it gives us the same properties that Git would have, where you can trace the current commit ID going back all the way to the beginning of time and know that there were no commits in in there that you didn't that you don't have or that mm-hmm. snuck in or that changed the file contents or something and that's basically the the big property that we want from git so the the way that we kind of decided to implement this is there's now a cvs show command which works like git show so you can do like git show and then a a commit ID and it shows you the diff, which is something that CVS never had and that people were asking for when I added the initial commit ID stuff mm-hmm. because you you have all the commit IDs in each file, but if you want to see like a diff that finds all those commit IDs in every file, you would basically have to walk the entire or the entire tree and look at every single file and see if there's a commit ID in there. 
So the work that I did to implement the Providence stuff is to basically store every change as far as the hash, the list of files, and the revision numbers in a separate file. So okay. when you do git show and then a hash, or you can do git show, I'll say git show hash, it just has to look up that hash in the the like index and see which files changed. And so then it can quickly go to those files and then produce a diff that shows you that that actual change. And since every every commit is referencing the one before it, you can put them all in, in an order. So you get the same property that subversion has where you have a change set ID. So the hash, the format of the hash or the like basically the, the new commit ID is basically like uh, a version number, the SHA, uh, it's using the new SHA-512-256 stuff that Tidu imported, which yep. is a SHA-512 hash truncated to, to 256 mm-hmm. um, bits. And then a change set ID. And that change set ID increments for every commit done to the tree. So you can also do git show and then a number and then read that diff of that change set. So it's basically adding all of these neat properties to CVS that CVS doesn't have in as lightweight a way as possible to avoid having to rewrite a lot of it. Because since we're still stuck on GNU CVS, I had to do all this in that ugly code base right? because we haven't switched to open CVS yet. So the other feature that Bob and I were talking about is like a, a way to um, fast forward a CVS tree. Because the mm-hmm. way that you do it now is you go to like user source and then you do CVS up and it has to scan every file and every directory yep. and then see what you modified and then ask the server what modified between these versions and then spit the whole thing out. And the whole thing takes like minutes even on fast equipment, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're using these commit IDs, you know, or CVS can store the hash that you were at previously and then just ask the server to CVS show that change set ID plus one. And then CV- the CVS server will respond very quickly with just a diff that looks yeah. up that change set, spits you out a diff, you apply that, or CVS applies that to your tree, and then you just keep walking forward until there's no more change sets. So uh, this CVS, you know, fast forward command or whatever I end up calling it would be like way faster than normal CVS update. And obviously right. you could still do CVS update if you needed to, to scan your whole tree, but this fast forward command or whatever, uh, would make things very fast. So that's, uh, CVS Providence and I've, I have all that stuff working. So I sent that diff out to, uh, the other guys to look at. Um, I'm not really sure what the plan is to go forward with it, but I've been working on my, uh, CVS commit ID conversion script that I wrote a long time ago. And I'm basically implementing the same provenance stuff inside of it so that it can spit out that index of every change with every file, with every revision, and right. put them all in order so that um, then we can go back, calculate all the actual hash uh, values for every commit, and then put those in the files on CVS, which is basically what the script was doing before, except all the commit IDs were random, and now they're going to be predictable um, from a known genesis hash yeah that's awesome um does that also solve the other issue of someone sending out a diff to the mailing list 
and we don't really have any way of knowing if that exact diff is what was applied to, to CVS. Be, um, this would give us like the ability to send out a diff with a, uh, a hash uh, or an ID, I guess, showing what the, the diff looks like. And then when it commits, it's going to be the same, right? Because it's going to have the same ancestor and you're going to have the same diff applied that was sent out to the mailing list. Uh, it would not because with CVS and the way that we use it with the dollar OpenBSD dollar tags that get expanded when you commit, uh, yeah, um, those will change the output of your diff, which changes the hash. And yep. because until you actually commit and get that hash, I, that um, that revision, it's. Um, I mean, I guess I don't really know how CVS or Git handles it because if you commit locally you get your git hash id but then if someone merges your yeah i don't know i'd have to look at how git handles that because if you commit and you get your git hash id and then you someone merges that commit onto their tree and it's out of order then your parent would be different right mhm so but that's part of the hash that git calculated and so i think that's that what's dip- um well i don't i don't think it would because if i ran a cvs diff right before I sent out that mail, I would have parent revision of 1.29. So it would be whatever my changes are to that. And we would see the IDs included in that, I, I would assume. And then, yeah, I guess it would change. As soon as you go to commit that ID, like tag changes when you go to check it in. So I guess it wouldn't produce the same diff and it wouldn't produce the same uh, hash at that point. So, yeah. But with, with Git, you're committing it locally so then you can pass around that change set, which has a commit ID because it's been committed. Whereas CVS, it's like the hub and spoke, mm-hmm. you know, versus the distributed source uh, source distribution. Yeah. What I found was weird is that uh, I didn't realize that the uh, Git commit ID does not actually include the contents of all the files that you changed. It's, That's scary. It is. Well, there's like a separate hash on that because it it separates like the metadata from the blobs okay but so you can change the contents of those blobs and the commit id doesn't change because the commit id is literally just a hash over the like date time the author and the commit log or commit message but they're somehow tied together differently on the back end so i i meant to look into that to see how they're actually doing that and because i'm positive that someone has looked into that and decided it was secure because if not that would be weird I kind of thought Mercurial did that with their uh, source tree, and that's how they were. Uh, when you do uh, like HG verify, mm-hmm. it, it makes sure that the source tree hasn't been modified. And I guess with Git, it would actually have to crawl the entire uh, source tree at that point in order to establish whether its uh, integrity is, is in, intact. Yeah. So that was the other thing that uh, we wanted with the provenance stuff is that if you have, like, Every release, we would take that index of file changes, and then Theo could sign it with Signify, and then right. that, that that signature can be published just like we used to publish the Signify keys for the CDs, mm-hmm. and then you can like tweet that if you want because it's short. But once, so if that file, if you can verify the contents of that file, you know the hash IDs of every commit, and so you could actually build up your entire CVS tree by saying by having a known Genesis hash and then saying, check out uh, hash number one 
or the hash with this or the commit with this hash of change that one, apply that diff, then do the same thing with two. And then, so you're stepping through the entire source or the entire commit history by hashes instead of change set numbers because you already know those hash numbers or hash values. And then you can know that every file tree or the tree that you're getting at the end is cryptographically the same as it is on the right. CVS server because um, that was the other thing is that the way that it calculates the uh, SHA-512 hash for the hash ID in the commit ID is um, the output of CVS show. So you do CVS show, pipe it to SHA. Well, when I did it, it, it was using SHA-256. So we have the SHA-256 command. So mm-hmm. you th- could literally just pipe the output of CVS show to uh, SHA-256, and it would produce the same hash as that hash is in the in the actual commit ID. So there's no, like, you don't have to write anything to manually verify the stuff that you're getting. So then um, it just makes it a whole lot easier to verify that the server isn't lying to you and saying, yep, I have that hash, and then actually feeding you something else. Right. So yeah, that's some uh, stuff that I've been working on lately. That's awesome stuff. And that especially ties in with what you were talking about a long time ago with commit ID and the ambitions you had to, to get it working because you wanted to be able to, um, once you fixed all those CVS uh, commits with a commit ID, then you could import it into Git and fix all the, the errors. Is that right? Uh, I mean, I can fix them all in CVS now, but right. once we had all those commit IDs for every change set and we knew all the um, the weird quirks and stuff, a conversion from CVS to Git would be like reproducible. Right. Or, so that you could ver- verify in the Git tree that it is identical to the CVS tree at every point along the way. And then if anyone like Bob is doing a conversion and then pushing it to GitHub, we know that those um, that tree is the same as ours. And we know that uh, there's nothing in between and that anyone can run the same conversion and get the same output because all the hashes would be, well, Git uses SHA-1 for everything. So yeah, boo on them, but I mean, it should all be the same. Um, so that's the CVS stuff. Uh, it's obviously not in the tree yet and we're still kind of working out how we want to go forward with this. Um, but I should mention that the Git trees that are on GitHub are not official trees like they're not part of the project they're not even stable like bob has already had to reset them and redo the conversion and it changed a whole bunch of stuff so you shouldn't like uh fork them on github and like do your development there because it's all gonna get changed in the future um so yeah so that's why it hasn't really been announced anywhere yet yeah uh speaking of bob and source trees he did a little bit of a surgery (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes at the hackathon too didn't he he did and i had to sit there and try and help him and uh brent do this and it was awful because they it didn't work the first two times and so they had to redo it and theo was getting very upset and i was thinking like this is you guys should not have done this like just copy the files and yeah you'll lose the commit history in cvs but it's like if you just commit and say these files were renamed from here like someone will be able to figure out where the old files are and right. then obviously once we have the CVS Providence stuff, they won't. there's no more repo surgery after that, <laughs> so this cannot happen again. Right. So, yeah, basically the uh, LibreSSL file trees 
were all moved around because the structure that, of how they were previously was kind of confusing. And so they were basically just moved to different files on on the actual CVS server to make them more, uh, to make them easier to navigate, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but that required copying files and then deleting tags out of one of them. And it was weird. And it screwed up my Git conversion that I ran on my laptop because the CVS to Git tool that most people are using got confused by those changes. Right. So I couldn't get fast forward on my laptop. So I had to go rebuild <laughs> my uh, tree on my server. And oh. it was a mess. And in the end, I, I don't really think it was worth it. But it's done now. So no yeah. going back. Yeah, between that and the import of LLVM, yeah. uh, I mean, the the CVS sync after that took a little while. And a lot of people were asking why it went, un- went under GNU. And um, why am I drawing a blank? Um, there's a README there now that says what it means. Yeah, yeah. There's a README now, but it was who's who's um, who's the guy uh, who works on Mandoc? I'm drawing oh, a blank. Ingo. Oh, Ingo. Yeah, Ingo was the guy who coined the phrase. Um, but basically, GNU wasn't really just for GNU tools. It was for uh, what was it like? Ghastly, gigantic, nasty. and nasty, but unavoidable. Unavoidable. <laughs> yeah, gigantic, na- and nasty, but unavoidable. So, all the software that uh, falls under that category—that's where that goes. And a lot of people were like, "This isn't a GNU tool," and yeah. I'm sure there's going to be fallout. Like, Stallman's going to find it, and the whole Emox <laughs> versus GNU versus uh, LLVM is going to come to a head again. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. So that was kind of funny. Yeah, lots of changes going on in CVS this hackathon. Yeah, and so we actually got, um, I got one of the, there was a manual hack in my conversion script for a particular file that uh, it used to be, what was it? It used to be like a directory and then it became a file. So there's oh, a, no. Or, no, there it used to be a file and then it became a directory. So there's a file in the attic called install in all caps, but there's also a directory called install in all caps. So as you're going through time, they conflict with each other. So I had that hack in my script to work around it. And so while Bob and I were working on this stuff, uh, we just manually renamed that file on CVS. Mm -hmm. So um, that is no longer needed. But it was nice to like finally get some of this, give some attention to the stuff that I've been playing with for years now. Right. Yeah. So a lot of other stuff happened. Um Adam Wolk, he's on IRC with us all the time, and he was working on some USB wireless drivers. And I guess he was having a problem with his, um, you know, watchdog not recovering properly. Mm-hmm. And the, the device would time out, and the watchdog watchdog would get fired, but it wouldn't reset the interface or anything like that. So he was working with um, uh, Stefan Sperling a little bit, and he sent out a diff, and then. Once he got the networking piece of it ironed out a little bit, um, he got the USB MPI was involved in the USB portion of that, and he was talking about where things belong in the USB stack. And if you guys want to read an interesting write-up, uh, Adam, you know, he's worked on the port stuff and just got his account several months ago, and he's been working on games and stuff. And here he is, you know, he, he ventures into the USB stack with, um, you know, wireless stuff. He yeah. he did a good write up for Unde- uh, uh, he did a good write up on Undeadly. So 
if you have a chance, read that. Um, I'm bummed I didn't get to go out there and hang out with him and, you know, spend some time testing Quake or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was just like super productive hackathon. Um, So many things that happened that like I can't imagine happening without everybody in the same room. Like even the CVS stuff that Bob and Theo and I were discussing together, like doing that over email would have taken weeks because, you know, just time zones and we're busy and all that other stuff. And just like, you know, at one point Bob was sitting at my table and we were just going back and forth like, oh, how about this? Oh, that won't work because of this. And what if we try this? And, you know, all this other stuff. Um, So it was like so much easier to to nail all this stuff down. And just like having random talks with people that um, you don't normally converse with. Mm-hmm. or even just like areas that you don't even work in. Um, like I had some kind of wireless. Oh, so there were two hack rooms in the at the computer lab because right. we had like 50 or 60 people there. Um, so we had to go like walk in, walk between these two rooms. And so there were two different access points on, for the same SSIDs. Um, and if you walked from one computer lab to the other with your laptop, it would drop all your connections. It wouldn't reassociate to the new AP. Right. So like, you know, that was something that I noticed. So like, I just got up and went and talked to Stefan and I was like, Hey, what's up with this? And he's like, Oh yeah, I know about that. It's like, cause of this. And so he was showing me in the code where there's like a to do. And, um, so it was just something that like someone needs to implement and, um, just something like that, that I might not have, have even looked into or, you know, thought was a problem, but because, it's so easy to just walk over and talk to the wireless guy who already knows about all that stuff. Um, mm. It was very helpful. Yeah. Um, so, man, I don't know how to transition transition this, but you reminded me of something else. Um, so Patrick Wilt, he works on ARM stuff, and he also works on LLVM. And um, what did he do? He, he was working on, he wrote this up on Undeadly, but he was working on the... Um, some changes in libc, right? Um, libc++, and I guess that's required for LLVM, and so I guess he was kind of collaborating with uh, mm-hmm. Theo at the bar, talking to him about that stuff, and um, he, he'd done the work before because he did it for Bitrig, and so he knew it was involved with it, and it was just a matter of coordinating that effort with the OpenBSD uh, team and making sure that all these things you know, went in the right order at the right time. So, um, yeah, they, they talked about that kind of stuff. And then they also decided that, uh, this was a good time to, uh, ax, uh, Zaris mm-hmm. and they could move forward with this ABI change, uh, once Zaris was gone. And then once the ABI change could be made, the ABI came in. So a whole bunch of, you know, things had to happen in the right order. And they happened in quick succession just because people were there and could, coordinate that and execute on that um, in a short time period rather than going over email, yeah. you know, while they're trying to do their job and coordinate time zones and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to break something or something is broken, it's a lot, everybody finds it really quickly and is able to, to yeah. fix it and it doesn't linger or somebody's just like, oh, I don't know, back it out. And then it causes this big problem. Um, something funny that happened was, uh, I think it was uh, Bloom changed our... Um, change something in the network stack, and our yeah. TCP fi- or our IP fingerprint is different now. <laughs> so the like PF dot OS uh, signatures for OpenBSD were no longer accurate, and yep. the firewall that protects 
cvs.openbsd.org had um, not been updated with the new signature. So as soon as he committed that, as developers were updating to current in the hack rooms, they could no longer commit because they could no longer right. log into CVS. <laughs> and the firewall that um, is in front of CVS that has that in there, Theo, like there's no remote access to it. Like Theo can't log in. So he had to call somebody that is by his house to go over there and update the file and then reload it. Right. So it would have been a while before somebody could do that. So Bloom had to back out the commit so that people could then commit again. <laughs> <laughs> but then because they had already updated to current, like they couldn't update from CVS to back right. to get the change backed out. So then they had to like get the change from another server. It's very funny. Oh my goodness. Yeah. sounds like a, a fun time. Yeah. Well, I'm bummed that I wasn't there, especially cause there was all this arm stuff going on. And I think that would have been neat. I mean, yeah. the whole hackathon just, it was in a cool country in a cool location and uh, a bunch of neat stuff happened and, and of course you know the last release with cds and everybody got their stuff signed so um really interesting yeah um bummed that i didn't make it out there for that yeah it sucks um yeah wish you could have been there it was my first time in the uk it was pretty cool yeah their tube system is very confusing <laughs> <laughs> oh man um so what else did you want to talk about? I had um, a Kickstarter that I backed, and uh, you've heard me talk about the Teensy. I love those things. I have a, a half dozen of them, and I really like them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a Kickstarter that Paul Staffordgen, I think that's how you say his name, He, this is how he basically releases his next rever- revision of the hardware. He's been working on it for a year or so now, and when he was ready to release it, he went to Kickstarter to get some funding, and just thousands of people back to this because everybody that has used the previous Teensies loves them. And uh, he has a whole bunch of hardware improvements um, for audio processing in particular, uh, more inputs and outputs, more sensors, and uh, just uh, a more powerful CPU, more memory. You can almost run OpenBSD on the thing. Um, and it's got onboard storage now and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I was like, take my money and... <laughs> Uh, they were supposed to be shipped in October. I think the Kickstarter said that they would be ready in October, but um, I've been getting updates, and I guess a thousand of them went out this morning in the mail. And uh, it was re- the, the really cool thing for me was all the updates along the way. He's showing, hey, here's our boards. Here's the process we go through for this. Here's us um, inspecting the, the first batch of boards. Here's what we worked with on our vendor. Here's us um, soldering on the boards. Here's us getting the cards. I mean, it was fantastic. And you could see that he'd done it before, and he was really well organized. But I think it was eye-opening to see, even for someone who's done it before, just what a a coordinated effort it is to launch a a Kickstarter effectively and to be shipping almost and fulfilling almost all your orders a month before your projected date. Yeah. Uh, you know, is is really cool. So if you want to see a success uh, success story, go to Kickstarter and find the Teensy 3.5, 3.6, and he did a really good job with that. So I'm looking forward to getting my hands on that later this week, and yeah. uh, I already have a couple ideas for it. As someone that's backed many things on Kickstarter, that is not normal. <laughs> Most things are delayed if they ever come out. Yeah. Um. How much RAM does it have? I think 256K. Oh, 
How's that going to run OpenBSD? <laughs> I was making a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek comment. But, oh, uh, I see. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'll find the... All right, so since we're curious about hardware stats, and that's kind of like our thing anyway, um, it has a whole bunch of input-output. So it's 180 megahertz ARM Cortex-M4 with hardware floating point. And let's see the specifics of this are... The board is gorgeous, too, by the way. They, um, the difference, one of the primary differences between the 3.5 and the 3.6 is the 3.6 works on 3.3 volts. The 3.5 works on 5 volts. Um, and other than that, there's some other similarities between the two. Let's see. Um, where is the board spec? Here we go. Yeah, the 3.6 has 1 meg of flash, 256K of RAM, and 4K EEPROM. Um, the microcontroller is an MK66 with a whole bunch of other Greek hylographics after it. Um, High-speed USB port, two CAN port, uh, bus ports, 32 general-purpose DMA channels, 22 pulse-width modulation outputs, four I2C ports, and 11 touch-sensing touch inputs. So impressive specs for a tiny little, I don't know if that's a $30 board or a $25 board or a $35 board, but um, a whole bunch of stuff going on there. Um, but again, check out Kickstarter. Um, you can just search for the Teensy 3.5 and you can get pictures of it and see the board. And it's got a onboard USB header now. So you can plug into that. You solder on your headers and plug in your micro SD card and and get to town. It's it's really nicely done. So what OS would that have to run? Something custom or? Yeah, it. Uh, he's updated. In addition to producing the hardware, he's updated all the um, Teensy Arduino libraries. Mm -hmm. And so he's got all the software to run this already. And he talks about the the bugs that he's overcome and worked with a couple of people to iron out um, in the Teensy Arduino suite. And what else was there? Oh, he he wanted to have an Ethernet controller for it, and uh, someone was working on that. I guess there was some issue that the um, just the way the interrupts were being handled. I think that's what it was with the Ethernet controller. And uh, somebody got that ironed out for him and sent him a bunch of bench benchmarks and said, "Hey, look, this is what I came up with." And one of the Kickstarters, if you backed it, you got these. Um, early adopters Ethernet boards, which I don't think are going to be available. You have to buy the uh, circuit board and the components and put it together yourself if you didn't get it in this uh, early adopter option. So yeah, that's the software that it runs. And there, I don't know if the bare metal Teensy effort is going to be ported to this or not. Um, I, I, I don't know. I know that it, it took a lot of effort for the first round of the 3.0, 3.1, and 3.2 boards to get uh, bare metal Teensy, but uh, we'll see. I, I did a couple things in there, and it's much more work than using the Arduino suite, but the Arduino suite lets you actually use libraries that actually exist. So it's a, another contrast of getting work done or working with tools that aren't horrible. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. 
So that is on Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, so back in uh, July, I guess this was episode 35, I mm. talked about launching the Chicago area BSD users group. Yeah. Or Shybug. And I am happy to report that in August, I actually met up with a bunch of people at a bar just as like an informal meetup to see who was interested in, you know, forming a group and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, got like five or six people that showed up, which was pretty cool. And then we had our first uh, formal meeting uh, on the, uh, what was it, third or fourth of this month? Nice. First Wednesday, I think. Um, And had like seven people, I think. And I gave a talk um, about getting OpenBSD working on the Chromebook Pixel. And one of the other guys gave a talk about... um, trace on FreeBSD. Nice. And yeah, so we have like a space now at uh, this guy I know, his uh, new office space. So uh, we have a place to meet and we're meeting on the first Wednesday of every month and we have a mailing list and a website and all that jazz. So that's pretty cool. Um, I'm finally meeting some other open or other BSD people in Chicago. Yeah, that's awesome. Especially, uh, Hearing talks about D-Trace, too, that's a, a good way to open up the the year. Yeah, um, because some D-Trace-related stuff went in uh, during the hackathon because MPI is working on a D-Trace uh, interface, I guess, in mm-hmm. the kernel. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So now I know how D-Trace works. That's awesome. Uh, how many people showed up for the talks? Uh, I think there was like seven or... Yeah. Something like that. So if anyone is in the Chicago area, go to shybug.org. And if you're not, just tell your friends. <laughs> um, yeah. So hopefully people will hear about it and kind of filter in and see what it's about. I'm hoping at some point people that don't even use BSD will just show up and be like, oh, I yeah. don't know what this is. Oh, that's neat. Maybe I'll use that instead of Linux. Yeah, <laughs> that's momentum in the right direction. Yeah. Um, and what else? Oh, I had a note uh, going back to OpenBSD stuff. The software aid crypto, um, mm, yeah. somebody published an article about he lost his software aid crypto password right. and how he recovered it. Um, and it was a pretty good write-up about kind of reverse engineering the thing looking at the kernel code and then figuring out how it derives the key from your password and then um, how he could kind of brute force that to get his password because he remembered, I guess, some of the passphrase. Um, And the outcome of that was that he found his passphrase, or he remembered it, I should say that. He didn't actually, like, reverse, like, actually brute force the entire thing. Um, but he was surprised at the uh, number of rounds that it used for the key derivation function. And as a result of that, um, the software aid crypto stuff, as of today, uses bcrypt for deriving the passphrase or deriving the key from your passphrase. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, if you are on current and you've updated and reinstalled your bootloader, 
you just need to change your passphrase with uh, BioCTL, and it will use Bcrypt to encrypt your uh, passphrase. So you get some better protection there. Yeah, while you were talking about that, I was trying to find the article. Somebody um, uh, desoldered the storage on the iPhone. Oh, yeah. I think it was the, yeah, and they were able to. Uh, what they did is they um, listened to the serial commands going across the I2C bus to figure out how it worked, and then I think they were able to brute force pretty much with as many tries as they wanted to crack the encryption key on the iPhone storage. And um, I think they were eventually able to prove that you could get back, uh, get back the information that was on the phone that was stored and you could circumvent the uh, number of retries that the iPhone uses before it locks you out. So um, I was trying to find the article yeah, that was the NAND mirroring attack yeah, that yeah, was yeah, yeah. Uh, actually used by the FBI to get that guy's, um, off of his uh, iPhone 5C, they paid him, or whoever came up with that, I guess, uh, FBI paid like a million dollars for this mm-hmm. attack to get the data on that phone, and I'm sure it ended up being useless anyway. Um, but that was on the 5C, and which does not have the secure enclave that the later uh, phones do. So that attack does not work anymore. Oh, okay. I, the article that I was reading, it was basically, um, yeah, it's exactly the the NAND mirroring thing. And someone was just demonstrating that you can go buy stuff from um, normal electronic shops and be able to do something like this. And yeah. I, I will say that I saw the the stuff that he was soldering up and. Most people are not going to be doing that. Most really good electrical people are not going to be doing that. Um, the amount of effort that he put into getting wires on this thing to be able to sniff the I2C bus and stuff was something that, you know, unless you were really, really, really uh, desperate, you weren't going to spend time doing. So don't think that, uh, you know, you're going to recover your iPhone 5C pictures that you lost. <laughs> um, so don't, yeah, don't get too excited about that one. Yeah, there was a uh, talk from an Apple security engineer at the latest Black Hat a couple months ago or a month ago, Uh um, basically talking about the secure enclave and giving more technical information about how it actually works. Right. Um, And it's it's pretty cool. Um, Basically like that and all of the stuff that Apple uses on their server side is all designed so that Apple can't get into your stuff. Right. Um, So they're like protecting themselves or protecting you from themselves. Um, so that they can't be uh, coerced into giving up any of your stuff. So that talk is pretty cool if you want to look at that. Um, And on the topic of kind of hardware stuff, uh, this guy Trammell Hudson, he was the guy that um, did that, uh, uh, what was it, Thunder Kit or Thunder something, using a Thunderbolt Ethernet adapter to basically inject stuff into your like persistent malware into a Mac just by oh, yeah. plugging in this uh, Thunderbolt Ethernet adapter because it basically used an option ROM and so it would like load it when you power on the machine and did some really cool stuff. Um, and I think I saw a picture of his lap or his Mac laptop after that and he actually like put super glue in the Thunderbolt port to, <laughs> as a way to protect against this. But anyway, he's been doing a lot of stuff with Core Boot lately, right? 
and he posted to the uh, he's been posting to the core boot mailing list and he's been experimenting with the intel uh, management engine on his x230 um, because that's one of the um, one of the first uh, thinkpads that you can't get rid of the or that you have to keep the intel management engine on for it to work and so he's been working on basically flashing parts of it so that it's not the complete ME, but it's just enough so that it can boot itself. But all of the like packages that are inside of it, as far as like the Java bytecode interpreter, which is a scary thing that your ThinkPad has, right? Um, all of that stuff, he's basically been able to get out of the management engine ROM that he's been flashing back to it. So the computer will boot with the ME stuff uh, powered up, but it doesn't actually do anything. So it's a way to, I guess, you know, secure your your machine from being able to be taken over by the management engine. So he's um, been posting like status updates as far as how much stuff he's been able to rip out of it with it still um, booting. Because I guess if the thing doesn't, if the ME engine doesn't isn't functioning to a level that it thinks is adequate, right. it'll just power the machine off after like thirty minutes or something. So he's been able to get all this stuff working and have it not power off. So he's continuing continuing to see, you know, how much of it he can actually destroy without the machine uh, freaking out. So that's pretty cool. Um, all that stuff is on the core boot mailing list. Yeah, that's awesome. And the other thing about that too is we're starting to get that Internet of Things living even inside the management engine. You have libraries that aren't updated and aren't patched and are vulnerable. And even though they're part of a security module, they create an attack surface that other people can use. And the same thing is happening with, uh, you know, like antivirus and malware detection and adware and, and stuff like that, where you have to run this in order to use a Windows computer. And yet they're finding that the antivirus engines were being attacked. So it's one of those things where the security, you know, tool was being used as an attack surface. Mm-hmm. So disabling a lot of that stuff and getting it out of there is, is definitely beneficial. It's not for the sake of just doing something, you know, malicious and it's not for the sake of, you know, uh, hindering the management engine. There's legitimate security reasons why you'd want to start disabling stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that Trammell guy actually posted on his Twitter account today. Uh, he was asking if anyone knows of the um, the clip that you need to clip onto the chip that you reflash. If anyone knows of any that don't wear out after so many cycles, because he's been flashing his ROM so many times lately. Uh, uh, it's kind of funny because that's the same clip that I was using on uh, the is it the HP Chromebook yeah. that I couldn't yep. actually get it to attach. So his are all deformed now. But I thought that was funny. And I was thinking, like, you know, that, that chip itself probably has a limited number of write cycles that he's going to go through before it starts flaking out. Yeah, it does. It it has it on the um, hardware docs. I think it's in the thousands, even. There's not very many write cycles that those can endure. Yeah. Pretty weird. Um, yep. Oh, I forgot to say, uh, thanks to Anil and Gemma, who hosted us at Cambridge. They mm-hmm. uh, work at the computer lab over there and Anil has been a OpenBSD hacker for about as long as I have um, he was talking to me about um, swapping out lib 
SSL? No, what's the library that we made that's not in uh, LibS or OpenSSL, but it's like the interface that OpenBSD made? LibreSSL, but... Uh... It's like the lib the library that like HTTPD links against, and it uses yeah. that like simplified interface. Anyway, so he's yeah. he's swapped out the backend for his OCaml version, but the uh-huh. API is all identical. So anything <laughs> that's linked with it, with our version of that library, could just use the OCaml backend. That's you know theoretically more secure than a C version, right. and the the application that's using that interface wouldn't have to make any changes. So yeah. that was something that he's working on. I thought that was pretty cool. Huh, that is really cool. Yeah. The Go release team has put out another greatly improved version, and I don't even know what they're actually on now, but the interesting thing that I saw happening was they went through a six-month release cycle, so they love our release cycle, and they're <laughs> imitating it, and I think they're having good results with it too. So um, they're... Uh, what was the big thing? The... Um, Oh, they added support for like an IBM uh, running Linux, which seemed kind of like an odd combination to me. <laughs> but uh, someone ported Golang to an IBM mainframe with Linux on it. That seems <laughs> like just a really bizarre way to do things. Yeah. But yeah, Go is still uh, making a lot of improvements and things are getting a lot better. And I see a lot of good things still happening there. And I still... Uh, haven't seen all the things I've complained about get fixed, but uh, they're marching forward anyway. Hmm. Uh, is that it for our comeback episode? I think so. I mean, there were, we had a million things to talk about, and I think we only skimmed to the surface, so we might have to do an, another episode next week. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure we'll uh, remember things as soon as we stop recording. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, I guess that's it for this episode. Uh if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM or through our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, how can people reach you? Yep, I'm on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W, and I'm also on Google+. Still hanging on to that Google+, are you? I'm hanging on, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS. Insert garbage sound. That was good. I should use that now. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad I didn't hit record. What is my deal? What did I do? I don't know. I was going to say that would make it, that makes it easier to edit, but it doesn't. I still have to like mute your end of the audio. With the cat purring and the crickets chirping and the dog snarfing. and Yeah. So I bought an Airstream. Yeah. I saw Metabug has turned into... Oh yeah, camper right. chat or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, so you ditched your idea for or your one that you made? No, I still have it. Um, and basically, we went on a camping trip. I took the boys out for their first boat ride, <laughs> and uh, we went across the lake. And then we got home and said, and Heather said, uh, "We're going to need a bigger camper." And I thought, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> you know, when the wife tells you that, it's like, uh, "I guess if you think so," and then go out and buy it. Yeah, well, we're going to need more beds for kids is basically what it boiled down to. So yeah. um, the uh, the camper that we have is going to be used, well, let's face it, the Airstream needs a lot of work. And so we're going to take this uh, smaller camper to families' houses, and you can park it in their drive or wherever. You don't have to be, you know, mm-hmm. real close. The Airstream we're going to use for, you know, you go to a camp 
ground and you stay for a week or something like that, you know, cause it's, yeah. it's a big, big, uh, camper. But, uh, it was one of those things where I was doing research a little bit and I found that people complain about the original strength of the airframe trailer. And they're like, all they did was take a 16th inch sheet steel and stamp it and bend it and weld it. And it's so light and it's so flimsy. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And it lasted 40 years and I just drove it a hundred miles <laughs> yeah. at highway speeds and it held together. And I was, I was actually going through twisty, turny roads and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and then the contrast to that is you have people sitting there and they're saying, um, I'm using, uh, what was it? Like 12 gauge steel, which is really light. Uh, 12 gauge steel is like a 10th of an inch. So in between a 16th and an eighth. And, um, or I'm sorry. Yeah. In, in between a 16th and an eighth, that's where a 10th is. Um, but anyway, uh, everybody's like, Oh, that's too light. You need to build it beefy, you know, better than the original one. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you just said the original frame rusted out, <laughs> right? 40 years old, rusted out, still hold together. And it was built flimsy to begin with. And then you talk about, you know, the steel that they're choosing, not being strong enough. Yeah. And then they were talking about, well, MIG welding isn't as strong as, uh, you know, rod welding. And it's like, guys, do you hear yourself? You're talking about a poorly welded 16th inch stamped sheet metal frame. And you said it was strong enough. And then here you are criticizing these people because they're not using the strongest welding method possible. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it just blows my mind. And people are building very grossly over-engineered uh, frames for these things now and sticking them on it. Sounds like just about every internet forum out there. So yep. People are just like, oh, no, that's not good enough. You have to do it this way. Do it the way right. I would do it. Right. Meanwhile, this this person's spending several thousand dollars on, you know, metal and uh, welding equipment and, you know, epoxy resins to, you know, uh, protect the frame so it doesn't rust again and all that kind of stuff. And they're over there being like, you know, couch. <laughs> Armchair, uh armchair quarterback and right. backseat driver. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's, it's, uh, in my future now I'm going to be, uh, building a frame or having someone fabricate a frame for me. I'm going to sketch up some plans and, uh, get some steel on, on order. And I have to replace basically everything underneath the axles, the brakes, the wheels. And, um, and then I'm going to, the idea is to take this new frame with a floor on it, ready to go over to a location where we have a crane, drive the old Airstream over to the same place where the crane is, pick off the body, and, uh, well, first you have to take out several hundred rivets, but then you take off the body and, um, you know, slide the new trailer underneath and attach it, and then you can start putting rivets back in at your leisure. But that's the plan. And then uh, from there, you know, we just... uh do the interior, which I finished our existing camper this summer. So hopefully, you know, now that I don't have to do as much figuring, I can just build stuff and, uh, have it ready to go. Yeah. By the time the, the frame's done, we can start to, to cart it inside. 